That's me. I'm having a lot of, not necessarily wanted, but significant calls coming through. Shall I turn it off? Yeah, I think that would be wise. Hello, I'm Colin Schindler, and welcome to another edition of Football Ruined My Life, the podcast series which looks at English football through the prism of the glorious days before the advent of the Premier League. Joining me today, as usual, are my co-septuagenarians, whose footballing experience goes back to the late 1950s. There's Mr Leicester City, John Holmes, and the distinguished football writer, Paddy Barclay. And it's, well, I mean, you can can turn over your examination papers and start. We're going to talk about Leeds United, and in particular, we're talking about the Leeds United of Don Revy's era which went from 1961 to 1974. And always, in my mind, there is a prefix that goes before Leeds United in that era, and it goes, Dirty Leeds. (laughs) Is that an unfair description? Because we know they had great players, but everybody that I talked to, and even the players that I've talked to, would always say, Dirty Leeds. I think it's fair. They were dirty, particularly in the early days, but they were also beautiful. There were angels with dirty boots. To say just dirty (laughs) leads would be a gross oversimplification. But certainly they were a team that brought cynicism into football and largely through Revy, who was, again, a complex man. He was a warm man and also a cynical man. He was a family man and a selfish bastard. And and all of those apparent contradictions, I don't think they are contradictions, but the apparent contradictions were reflected in his teams. They began as a pragmatic team, hard in the image of the player who probably was the best player in the promotion that got them out of the second division, which is where Jack Charlton started. That was Bobby Collins. He was a little man with a nasty streak. That was inherited by the man who took over from him in midfield, John Giles. Collins would leave a foot in, and Johnny Giles did later. He excused it by saying it was kill or be killed in those days, and there was an element of truth in that. John, that's an interesting point that that Paddy raises about Don Revy as a man of contradictions. To an extent, we're all a mass of contradictions, I suppose you could argue. But he was, as a player, he wasn't particularly quick, and he certainly wasn't very hard. Why do you suppose he'd felt the need to create this aggressive instinct and this image of the hard, rather bitter team that he eventually started working on in the early mid-60s? It's part of the character of the city of Leeds, isn't it, as well? I spent my university years at Leeds between 1968 and 71. Three years, I didn't see them lose at home until the final year... And when they did, there was a riot. There was that match, the West Brom game. Ray the Tinkler. offside goal, Ray, Ray Tinkler. Tinkler and the aggressive crowd and everything else. They were a very, very hard side. They had several in their side who you would say were in the class of assassins. Reaney mm-hmm. was really, really mm-hmm. tough. Mm-hmm. Giles was. Bremner was. Jack Jolton was no saint either. You've missed out Clark. Yeah. The forwards could be nasty too in those days. Yeah, they weren't in the class of Andy Lockhead, though, were they? Billy Whitehurst. <laughs> Billy Whitehurst. Yeah, I mean, Mick Jones was a nice fella. I mean, the story I do remember told to me quite recently by Alan Birchinell, 
he and Mick Jones were mates, of course. They were brought up together at Sheffield United. Yeah. And it was said that actually Reeve wanted to buy both of them, oh. but Sheffield United didn't want to sell both to the same club. Birchinell went back with Chelsea to play at Leeds. Birchinell says that in those days, the nails were showing at the bottom of the studs. Mm. And he got gashed on the head by Billy Bremner. He was on the ground and Bremner sort of left his boot there. Medical science being what it was in those days, they'd stuck an elastoplast on it or something. (laughs) And Birch had only just gone to Chelsea. His uh, girlfriend later became his wife. Heather was back in Nottingham. He wasn't going back with the Chelsea side back down to London. He was going back to Nottingham. So he needed a lift to the train station. So he said to Mick Jones, Mick, could you give me a lift to the station after the game? Mick says, unfortunately, no, I've got a full car or something. And he then said, oh, Billy will give you a lift. And he looked at him. He did that to me. (laughs) Oh, you know, he's all right. He'll take you. So eventually uh, Bremner twitched his finger at him. He went out. He got in the car. Bremner said nothing as he drove him towards the station. And just before he got out, he looked at Birch and said, looks nasty that I'll get someone to have a look at it. (laughs) (laughs) So Don Reavy, yes, started his career at Leicester. Reavy starred when from the bottom of the second division, they got to the cup final in 1949. And then just before the cup final, he burst a blood vessel, something like that, very nearly apparently died as a result of this injury and didn't play in the final. But he was a thinker as a player. He invented the Reavy plan. He went to some scruffy side in in the mid-1950s. Well, to be fair, he didn't invent the Reavy plan. Can we sort of drop in there? I'm afraid, you know, you're in my territory now. (laughs) I did say it was a scruffy side. Go on, Colin. (laughs) Did you say he liked pace? Colin? Yes, I did. He was Hidakuti. Hidakuti was the deep line, the original, well, as far as I know, the original deep line centre forward. But why Revy deserved to have it named after him in, in England was that it was very unusual for people to take ideas like that in those days. And he did, he took the idea, he adapted it. And of course, it's been used spare, too sparingly, in my opinion, basically until Guardiola came up with the false nine. So, I still think he deserves a lot of credit, as does the manager of Manchester City under whom he yes, worked. Yes, that was my point. Because what the manager did, and you'll tell me his name, McMullen or something, was it? Les McDowell. McDowell. McDowell, actually, when Reavy explained why this tactic would work, McDowell actually got his reserve team to play that way for several months to test it out. Is that right? That's right. You know, it was really well thought out. He was a thinking player, Also crafty in those days because Bobby Charlton, aged 15, was playing for England schoolboys at Manchester City at Main Road. And at half-time, as he walked up the tunnel at Main Road, Reavy, who was a player at Man City at the time, approached him and said, no, no, don't go to Manchester United, they're a rubbish club. So he tried to poach Bobby Charlton in the tunnel. He was keen on poaching players. Yes, he was. Frank McClintock told me that when he was at uh, Arsenal, he approached McClintock in the marble halls before the game and Mm. attempted to get him to throw the game. He offered him money. He said there would be a holiday in it for him and so on and so on. And this match didn't matter to them. 
he did it quite brazenly. He was unscrupulous in that regard. I think the reason that Clough really, really hated him mm. was the fact that when Derby won the championship, Revy had tried to, well, it was documented, wasn't it, that mm. they approached yes, Wolves yes. to get them to try it. So he was completely unscrupulous. He and Clough came from very similar, very deprived backgrounds in Middlesbrough. Yes. Completely different as players and very different in personalities, but both had a sort of deep-rooted sense of the world being against them. Mm-hmm. Before we leave the Revy plan, Colin, can you just put it into context? Is it simplistic to call it a false nine or a... Yeah, no, it's not simplistic. I mean, that's the nearest equivalent. But it did involve Troutman getting rid of the ball very, very quickly. As a goalkeeper. Was, as a goalkeeper. Troutman was a wonderful handball player in Nazi Germany before the war. And he caught the ball. He never punched anything. He caught it all the time and he got rid of it with this overarm throw that will go straight to the outside right or outside left, waiting on the halfway line on the wing. The key person who got the ball to Revy was the right half called Ken Barnes. And it was this link between Troutman, the goalkeeper, the right half midfield player, we call him now, Ken Barnes, and a deep-lying centre-forward, Don Revy, that was the essence of the Revy plan. But he was a thinker and he did take his thoughts to Leeds United. But when he got there, they weren't the creative, imaginative plans. They were... Let's kick everybody else till they die kind of plan. So you're saying that the Revy and the deep-lying centre forward, that was definitely McDowell and not Revy. I'm saying that my information is, bearing in mind I was five years old, that it was McDowell. Revy was the key figure because Revy had to buy into it. But the idea that he got it from the Hungarians and brought it to Main Road, I'm not convinced that's true. He certainly had a vision. I remember when I was at university... Previously, they denied all access to the student newspaper, but there was a lot of interest in Leeds at that point. And I managed to somehow or other get into Revy's office and say I wanted to do this piece about Leeds United. And he allowed us in for the day. We did a fairly big piece with lots of photographs in the newspaper. And in fact... He was quite approachable, actually, and I had a long chat with him, and he was quite puzzled by the fact that a student would actually be interested in football. Mm. Probably his view was that students were academics, (laughs) and the people who watched football were working-class people who didn't go to university. It was almost a bit like that. And he seemed quite fascinated that I was interested and so on in it. They were relentless as a side. They also had some very, very skillful players. I mean, Eddie Gray was a really, really skillful player. Eddie Gray got a lot of stick from the crowd early on because his style of play wasn't the Leeds way. Mm. But he was a magnificent dribbler, very, very cultured player. He had the proverbial educated left foot. Mm. He also had Lorimer, who had reputedly one of the hardest shots in football. He also had... Paul Madeley, one of the early utility players. Paul Madeley played all over the place for mm. him. Terry Hibbert was a skillful left winger, left sided player. Giles was a dirty player, but he also he was a very, very skillful player and a good thinker about the game as well, mm-hmm. evidenced by what he did later on. They certainly became a very, very good footballing side. In Revy's last year, I think they went 29 games unbeaten at the beginning of the season and played some terrific football. But I do remember pre-season of 71, 
72. I was training with Manchester City and they were due to play Leeds on the Saturday. Mm. And I remember coming off the training pitch with George Heslop and I think Alan Oakes and they were talking about the upcoming game against Leeds. Mm. And they did not like Sniffer. Whereas Giles was, was obvious and Bremner was obvious in terms of their hardness. Sniffer was nasty and underhand. Yeah. And that's what they didn't like about Leeds. What, Sniffer Clark? Yes, Sniffer Clark. Alan Clark was a wonderful player, very, very sneaky. But there were a lot of forwards around in those days who were like that. Brian Kidd was like that. You know, horrible to play against because you wouldn't know how you, why your ankle hurt, you know, because it would just be <laughs> a little... But in a way, we're running slightly ahead of ourselves because mm. I, I've just remembered why. No, I haven't. I looked it up on Wikipedia. Why did he change from being thinking man's footballer to up-and-coming manager of mm. Leeds United? Because his final club, after Man City, for whom he played more than any other club, he then had a time with Sunderland and then went to Leeds United, where he finished his career and applied to be player-manager. And they appointed him. This was at the time where the sort of patrician manager of the Busby kind was giving way to the bootroom mentality, you know, the cadre of coaches. And they had Morris Lindley there. They had a brains trust, if you like, as Shankly at the same time had at Liverpool with Ruben Bennett and Ronnie Moran and Tom Saunders and so on. So Leeds were in the vanguard in the mid-1960s of the new football. And that eventually caused the downfall of Matt Busby who had himself been the first great tracksuit manager. And what Giles told me when I was researching the life of Sir Matt Busby at Manchester United was that man for man, we weren't in the same class as Manchester United, but as a team and tactically, they couldn't beat us. And that this was where football changed in a sense. I accept your point, Paddy, because mm. in 60... So they got promoted, I think, 63, 64. Yes, and in 64 65, mm -hmm. they finished level on points with Manchester United yeah. and lost the championship on goal difference. Or, right. Sorry, goal average, as it was then, yep. which is an extraordinary achievement. I think they also, they also got to the cup final, I think, that year. Well, 65, they got and to the cup final and were beaten unluckily by, by Liverpool. By Liverpool. And it may well be that getting to the cup final cost them maybe one point, you know. So. They were remarkable in a sense, almost comparable with, with Clough's Forest in, in shooting out of the second tier with such force. That it they... wasn't so uncommon then. No. Uh, quite a few. So Ipswich. Ipswich did the same. Liverpool did it. Obviously, Forest did it. Derby did it as well. Yes. Nowadays, the sides that come up, you know they're really going to struggle. There is such a big gulf between the second and the first. But in those days, there wasn't such a big yeah. gulf. Mm. I didn't think it was surprising that Leeds came up. Leeds had previously been managed by Major Frank Buckley, hadn't mm. they? Mm -hmm. But they'd had, reputedly at that point, the best footballer in the world, John Charles. John. He left them for whatever it was, 60-odd thousand pounds or something like that was, yeah. period, yeah. I think, which was a world record He went fee. to Juventus. He, he went did. to Juventus, that's right. So they'd lost their best player. They had a manager, Major Frank Buckley, who was out of a different sort of... He was Cullis's mentor, wasn't he? At yes, one 1930s. Stage, and was more of the kick-and-run yeah. style of play. You know, in many ways, Buckley was meant to be a thinker, but the thinking had changed. Mm -hmm. Revy did come in. He did have a vision early on, 
my father always said that playing for Leicester, they all saw him as a thinking player, even though he was a young man. They were a pretty rubbishy side. They were in the bottom half of the second division and they got to the cup final and they beat Portsmouth in the semi-final. Portsmouth, who were going for a league and cup double. Yeah. And Revy was apparently utterly brilliant in that game. So he was, uh, I think, a tactical thinker. I would like to think he possibly had something to do with it more than Les McDowell did. But let's widen the discussion slightly. Leeds as a city never had any success before Don Rivy at all, and that Leeds United, as far as I'm aware. Not at football. Not at football, exactly. Largest city with one club at that point, and still the largest city with one club. Why was Leeds incapable of producing a side to compete with Manchester or Liverpool or London. I mean, there's no reason. Revy proved that it could be done, but Leeds never seemed to be a football city. Do you accept all that? Yeah. The plain fact is that the history of the city was extremely checkered. I mean, the banishing of Leeds City Football Club, you know. Can you explain that? Oh, I beg your pardon. Yes. Leeds City Football Club, managed by the father of management, the greatest of them all, in my opinion, Herbert Chapman went out of business after being accused of making illegal payments to guest players during the First World War. The club was disbanded and was replaced by Leeds United. There was talk that it was fixed by the FA and the the Football League. But it all added up to the sort of underperformance, the sort of constant failure. And when Revy took over as, as player manager initially of Leeds United, they'd never won a trophy. But this is Leeds United at their worst. They became very good. What was Revy's plan right at the beginning? Who were the players that he wanted to sign? Because he signed very utilitarian players, didn't he, essentially, to do a specific job? No, he thought big, didn't he? He wanted to sign Alan Ball Oh, did he? from Blackpool and failed. Harry Catrick probably had more money at that stage, signed him for Everton. He signed John Giles. He paid a record fee for Alan Clark. Mick Jones was a very expensive centre-forward from Sheffield United. Birchinall and Mick Jones both moved for 100000 I think. So he thought big, and he was backed. Manny Cousins was chairman, wasn't he? The Waring and yes. Gillow yes. chairman. Yes. And he got up into the first division, and they did well from the start. I think one cannot underrate the scale of that achievement. He got this very much us against them. He controlled every aspect of the player's life. He was very, very keen on them all doing things together. Mm -hmm. When he went to England, he tried to do the same. And I can remember several England players of that era told me we weren't going to play his family games. Yeah, that's right. Carpet bowls, all that sort of thing. He engendered this sort of family atmosphere about it, which works at club level. But of course, I don't think it works at international level. Paddy, do you remember Clough's statement about the family that Revy created at at Leeds? No, what did he say? What did he say? Was it a Sicilian family? Yes, it was a family that owed more to the mafia than to mother care. (laughs) (laughs) That's typical Clough. But actually, the players swore by... Don Revy. One of the things he brought in was care for the families of the family, if you see what I mean. If if your wife had a birthday, there'd be a buzz on the doorbell at nine o'clock in the morning and there would be a bunch of flowers from Revy and the club. They loved him in return. I mean, the, the, you won't hear a word against him from any of the old players who survive. But when you look back at, at 
I find this when I've studied the, the lives of great managers, and, and I certainly would include Revy among those, that they always have a wee bit of luck at the beginning. Even Herbert Chapman, when he got to Huddersfield, the youth policy was already working. If you look at Matt Busby, most of his first great side, the 1948 side, had already been brought there by a man called Louis Rocca and were there when Matt Busby came back from the Second World War. If you look at, in 1972, the match that, when you talk about Leeds United and beauty, you think of the 7-0 annihilation of Southampton. Of, of Southampton, which was beauty, sadism. I think the way they beat them would now be considered almost unprofessional because they took the mickey out of them. But if you look at that team, I think there were only two big buys. The rest had come up. Bremner and Giles, well, Giles they paid money for, but not an outrageous fee, as I mean, like 40 grand or 30 grand as a Man United reject. Sprake, did they buy Sprake? I can't remember. No, he was there as a boy. Reaney was there. Charlton was there. Hunter was through the ranks. Maidley. Lorimer and Gray brought down from Scotland at the age of 15. But he made quite a few buys, Paddy. He bought in Bobby Collins from Everton. Again, that was a cheap buy for a player at the end of his career. The only big signings to take that promotion team to the extraordinary levels that they reached were those two you mentioned. Clark, what was it, 200,000 from less than... 165, I think. 165. And Jones, a bit less, I think. 100. 100, right. So a lot of that team was there and was developed from within the club. And it had been together for seven years. Eight, eight years. And they talk about FA Cup shops... Mm. I know everybody tends to go for Ronnie Radford and Hereford United and all that, but my mind doesn't go that way. It goes to Colchester. At one point, it was Colchester 3, Leeds United 0. It finished 3-2. But the fact that that Colchester from, I suppose, the third division at that time, were they maybe possibly fourth? I don't know. Fourth, I think. It was the most astonishing result I knew of in terms of its unexpectedness. In 1970-71, was it? Was it that season? I think it was. And the glee. I'm, I'm sorry about for Leeds supporters because they must feel under threat here. And they're not, really, because they created, unfortunately, a sense of antipathy from other clubs and other players and, and commentators and so on that was perhaps unfortunate and got in the way of an appreciation of their skills. They tried, you know, to be... They altered their badge to being almost like an adaptation of a smiley face. Yes. They hired the wonderful Paul Trevelyan, <laughs> an extraordinary man who made a living out of a sort of style of realistic cartoons for magazines and books and so on. <laughs> he was hired and went up and he brought in all sorts of gimmicks. Do you remember they used to have those garters with the yes, flashes yes, yes, at the yes, side? Yes. They had the smiley face badge. Yes. They came up with all sorts of ideas to try and make themselves popular. I think Revy never really came to terms with the fact that people didn't like his side. He wanted people to like his side. Uh He felt the world was against them, hence the bribing of the opposition Mm -hmm. on occasions to try and get his way. He was just putting right this sense of the world being against him, which I also see 
to an extent in Clough. Clough was convinced that people didn't like him. The establishment didn't like him. The directors didn't like him. He didn't do much himself to make himself popular with directors, <laughs> but he always felt that everybody was against him. And Revy had the same quality about him. You know, infamy, infamy, they all got it, infamy. Mm. It's almost encapsulated in that match against West Bromwich Albion. John, can you describe the importance of that match and what actually happened and why it stayed in all our memories ever since? Yeah, I think it ran into the second half. It's probably nil-nil. Leeds were pretty much in control. In my recollection, Tony Brown was wandering back. Tony Brown was this deep-lying goal scorer, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tony Brown was wandering back along the wing not playing any part in the game. But the ball got hit over the top. Leeds had advanced up almost the halfway line and somebody broke from the back. The player was so far, you know, on his own against the keeper. He scored and there was still 20 minutes to go, but all hell broke loose in the crowd. Revy was on the pitch. They were running all over the place virtually assaulting the referee. But the fact was that Revy was at the forefront of that. I think the scorer was Colin Suckett, wasn't it? It might have been, but the thing that gets lost um, is that Leeds equalised. And still lost 2-1, yes. But the aggression that came from Revy going on the pitch, from this outrage, I was standing in the cop end Mm. and it was genuinely frightening. It was horrible. And several Leeds fans, whether they took their cue from the manager or not, went on and had to be intercepted before they got to the referee, Tinkler. Tinkler was asked about it many times, and he said, look, the guy was in his own half. You know, couldn't have been offside. The question wasn't whether he was offside. It was the question whether Tony Brown, yeah. wandering back... Was not interfering with play. The definition of interfering with play yes. hadn't really come into it then. I think we have to put it into context too. This was almost the penultimate game of the season, wasn't it? It was. It was, it was very, a very, very late stage in the and, season. And effectively, that defeat handed the, t- the possibility of the title. It must have been to Arsenal. And they won it on a Monday night at Spurs, didn't yes. they? The head of Bar- yep. Ray Kennedy. Had that goal not stood, it would probably have been Leeds' championship. The fact is, of course, the Leeds players gave up. But actually, the guy was well away. They couldn't have done anything about right. it. He was on his own at that point. Yeah. So it's at least arguable that it was yet another piece of gamesmanship. They were playing it with live bullets, by the way, because the crowd could have attacked the referee, but that they were trying to gain... Intimidate. Intimidate, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you were there, John. It was ugly, wasn't oh, it? Oh, it was not only ugly during the game. I can remember it was ugly after the game. Mm. Coming out of that end was very difficult. <sighs> Leeds was a tough city in those days Mm. it was a very tough atmosphere it was a Mm. tough town and Revy played on that they were a pretty intimidating crowd as well putting it into footballing context this is the culmination of the season 70-71 if you go back 12 months Mm. Leeds were on the verge of a historic treble they were you know European Cup finalists lost to Celtic they lost out on the league I can't remember where they got in the cup, but they were constant runners-up. I mean, that sense of disappointment, which was dreadful for Leeds supporters at the end of that season where they'd competed on so many fronts so well for so long. And then the next year when they looked like they were actually getting the championship, 
the rate inkligal yes must have been a factor in creating that outraged atmosphere of, of violence. Correct. There was a sense of we've been cheated yes, again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It was the semi-final they lost to Celtic, I think. Yes, it was, yes. You yes. know, every football fan has his hard luck story, but Leeds have more than most. I don't think Revy hated Clough the way Clough hated Revy. Would that be true, John? Absolutely true. If you look at that interview on television, mm. which you can see on YouTube, mm. Revy was looking sort of puzzled. Yes. Mm. This man had come in and smashed his team up. Yeah. And I think it goes back to Clough was convinced that Revy had tried to buy the title. But that sort of stuff wasn't unknown. I'll tell you where the origin might have come from. In that 1949 Leicester side that got to the final, which Revy was a part of, Leicester played in the cup final. Everyone loved them because they'd beaten Portsmouth and come up and it was a real fairy tale story. They were in danger of going down and they played matches after the cup final. And they had to, I think, get a draw or win at Birmingham City. And I think they got a draw. And that was widely rumoured that the Leicester chairman bribed Birmingham. That match was said to be played in the most peculiar atmosphere and that Leicester were pretty hopeless, scored. And for the last 20 minutes, the sides just passed the ball back and forwards to each other. (laughs) And that sort of stuff was not unknown in those days. Mm. You know, pre the war, I mean, Herbert Chapman got mixed up in it, as as you've said. Yeah, yeah, Leeds City, yeah. You know, the players were paid nothing. And, and they're all paid the to same. To get an extra few quid was absolutely fine. Let me just tell you in slight parentheses there that I happen to know that brown envelopes did change hands at I'm sure at, at, <laughs> at, at Reeve's insistence. But the lucky recipients were journalists. When the press, probably a small contingent of maybe five or six, went on the European trips with Leeds it was not uncommon for them to be given a little bit of spending money. And this was right at the end of the era, I never experienced it, where after the match, players and journalists would drink together and what went on tour stayed on tour. I don't particularly remember that after matches, but it had quite a funny uh, consequence because a reporter who went on his first trip, European trip, was assigned to Liverpool against let's say Milan or something like that. And he got on the plane with the rest of the Liverpool journalists and the Liverpool players going to Milan, but it was his first time he'd ever been on an overseas tour with a, with a team. And some of the Mersey Mafia, we used to call them, the journalists from Merseyside decided to have a bit of fun with him. So they said, have you got your, your money? He said, what, what do you mean my money? And they said, well, Shankly always gives us 50 quid in an envelope on every trip. And he said, no, I've not had it. I've, I've heard that, you know, the Leeds lads get that. He said, oh, well, it's the same here. He'd be really annoyed if, if, if you haven't got it. And he said, well, what, what should I do? And they said, well, go and ask him. So then, <laughs> then you know, and, and he goes up and he, he asks Shankly for his money. <laughs> <laughs> he comes back with his knees knocking, you know, and, We've talked about dirty leads, Colin, but you haven't talked about the biggest, most notorious game, which was the cup final against Chelsea oh, of in course, 1971. Of course, of course. 
and was really billed as the, the battle between the North and South. In the first game, Eddie Gray was utterly brilliant. He took Dave Webb apart, yeah. and it was only because Gary Sprake, who Revy curiously hung on to. I mean, I could never, ever work out why on earth he stuck with Sprake, who was prone to errors of catastrophic proportion. I mean, it, this is a goalkeeper who threw the ball it into his own net. net against Liverpool, and the <laughs> cop sang careless hands, <laughs> which was then top of the hit parade. Sprake dived in extraordinary fashion at a very innocuous header and managed to make a sort of circle with his hands of which the ball bounced yeah. obligingly straight between. So Chelsea very fortunately got a replay. Yeah. And in the second match, which was at Old Trafford, which I watched in Leeds on television. That was an epic. And of course, in that game, Ron Harris and Dave Webb took their revenge. Leeds ought to have won that game. Very good goal by Jones, wasn't Correct, it? it was. And they looked like they were going to win. And then Osgood, terrific centre-forward, of course, magnificently built centre-forward, fabulous header, got them back. And then Dave Webb with a bundled header, as I recall, at the far post of all people. The guy who had had the mick taken out of him throughout the first game mm. won the game for yeah. them. That was the North versus South battle, wasn't yes. it? The same night, Manchester City won the European Cup Winners' Cup in Vienna, oh. beating Gornick, Gornick. two goals to one. Mm. I should just add that. In, in front of a packed house of 7,000 people. 4,000, was it? People. But just one final a footnote on the careless hand story, which is absolutely Absolutely true. But just to show that the old cynical gamesmanship had still not died, while the uh, cop were chanting that, Jack Charlton went over to the referee with his arms wide open and says, Cod referee, this is a tricky one, ref. What are you going to give? <laughs> 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 it has to be said, these were the areas when pitches were sticky yes. and the ball was caked in mud. Yes, so it wasn't right. that the excuse? Uh, yeah, it was. Jack Charlton, you know, Jack Charlton was you bring up at this particular point. There was this moment where in the mid-60s, mm. Charlton would go up for corners, not looking to head the ball, but he was standing in order to block the goalkeeper from going to the ball. Mm -hmm. and, and standing on the goalkeeper's and feet. On the, and, 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 you yeah. know, the Harry Dowd, City goalkeeper was five foot nine, Charlton six foot two. It just seemed unfair. There was nothing you could do about it. You just looked at Charlton loping like a giraffe up the field towards the city goalkeeper, and you thought, This is not right. But that's, not it, fair. It's part of the game now, as if it was basketball. The reason I look back at that era with any fondness, a lot of it's to do with the way the referees are. If you push someone in the back in those days, it was a foul. Now, the commentator will say something like, oh, he was just too strong for him. This is, again, I'm veering off piste here, but I really do feel that the game now, I don't really recognise certain facets of it in terms of what's a foul and what isn't. It's more skillful. There is more chance these days for the skillful players to get away with it. In those days, wingers got chopped to bits. In that game, Harris, you know, got away with blue murder on Eddie Gray, kicked him up in the air. Osgood represented, of course, everything that Leeds hated. Mm -hmm. He was flash. Mm -hmm. He was from the south of England. Yeah. He was cocky. I mean, he was a good-looking bugger yeah, as well, yeah, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. It was the King's Road. It was the era of swinging That's London. Right, yeah. They really thought they were the kings of the walk in those yeah, days. Yeah. They were the original Flash Harrys, weren't mm. they? 
there was a very strong sensation that Southern players didn't do so well in the north of England. Mm. I mean, when they came to Manchester and they came to Liverpool, all the, I mean, you didn't get many of them because they didn't do very well up there. That Leeds side wasn't really born in London. I think the rest of them were all from Yorkshire, the North East or Scotland. Yeah. Exactly. And that's my yeah. point. But are we going to go on and on and on about the negative sides of Leeds? Because I really want to discuss that game in 1972, that game against Southampton. That was where Don Revie's second phase, Leeds United, for me, completely distinguished themselves from the sort of alehouse football, to quote Shankly, side of football in the 70s and just displayed utter beauty when they beat Southampton, who were the original alehouse football side in those days. It got better after the scoring stopped, because the seventh goal went in with about 17 minutes to go, and then the fun started. The passing that never allowed Southampton to get a kick of the ball. And when they did get it, they'd win it back in a way that would have gladdened Guardiola's heart. I yeah. think there was, at one stage, there were 35 passes of which Southampton had made one. And they all went through their party tricks. I mean, Bremner played keepy-up, followed by a back-heel pass. Eddie Gray wasn't... All that arrogance didn't come naturally to Eddie. But Eddie did have one of his uh, trademark hurdles, you know, like a classic hurdler where he's not actually jumping. He's actually just stepping over the tackles. And the crowd chanting Ole, it was arrogance. And as I say, if they would probably be considered bad form now. I don't know. Have you, haven't you? you watched Manchester City these days? No, they don't rub it in, though. They do rub it in. Well, it's very difficult to get the ball off them. It's yeah. a different style. What was different about it then was people didn't play that way. Yeah. If you watch those games from the 70s, the ball regularly changed hands. One of the reasons was the pitches were so bad. Yeah. They would hit lumps and bobble and shoot about and land in puddles and things like yes. that. <laughs> but that performance was just self-conscious... Showboating. Showboating. I don't, showboating. I'm, I'm not against showboating. If it's appropriate, and being 7-0 up, is appropriate. But the sixth goal, I think, said an awful lot about this Leeds United. Because as I think it was John who said earlier that Jack Charlton in the second division wasn't considered a particularly good player. As we all know, he ended up with a world champion medal to prove that he was a decent player. It's good to hear you admit that. Paddy, what? As a Scotsman. You found it hard deserved. to get it out. No, no, no. Say, but you said no, it. No, 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 no. England were world champions and held the title until we beat them 10 months later. So, no, no, I agree they held the title for 10 months. That's fine. But <laughs> the sixth goal said an awful lot about how the side had developed. The sixth goal was a far post header by Jack Charlton. Nothing unusual about that, you might say, particularly as Jack. The arrogance began with Jack, you know, because Jack started playing midfield just for fun, because he could. Anyway, he gets the sixth goal with a far post header, the cross from the left, Norman Hunter's cross, beautiful cross, just plopped it. So that's the two centre-halves. Who was playing centre-half? Nobody. Didn't need one. They didn't need one. Hunter also had the uh, educated left foot. Actually. Oh, Hunter was a he player. He was a pretty one-footed player. 
He was a pretty good but player. But he could play. He could play. He was unlucky. He came up against Bobby Moore, so he didn't play. That's that right. Often. But he missed that tackle on the far side at Wembley against Poland in 1990. Uh, Jan Domarski, yes. Yeah. And Domarski scored from the cross and Shilton let mm. it in. Yeah. But it was Hunter who missed the tackle that should have put the ball out. Yeah, there. possibly because it was on his right foot. Very, very one-footed. And the other thing about it was that you, you talked before about Leeds United it's the first time I ever heard the phrase bridesmaids in, in the sporting context mm. because they were second or third in everything. But the amazing thing about it was that they were in contention for every trophy. Every year. And that, that seemed. Every year. Well, and indeed, it was somehow appropriate that in 73 74 they had this wonderful unbeaten run for 29 games and they won the championship and so on. And Revy then gets appointed manager of England and he leaves. Mm. And. What happens to Leeds after that? And why did it happen so quickly? Because they did get to the European Cup final the following year under Jimmy Armfield. But then there's a terrible gap between the late 1970s and the late 1990s. As happens with all great sides, the players came to an end. The great players came to an end. As Paddy has said, that side was basically almost the same from the 60s when they came up to the 70s. And then Hunter went, Charlton went, Bremner went, Giles went. Lorimer was not the power he was. Eddie Gray got injured, I think, and went out of the game. Ironically, they replaced Charlton with Gordon McQueen. They replaced Mick Jones with Joe Jordan. Jordan, And then sold them both to Manchester United, which was a ridiculous thing to do. Yeah, Manchester United ripped the heart out of that attempt of Leeds to rediscover. Without any success, actually. Yes, they never reached the heights that they'd had at Leeds. Well, listen... Thank you so much for all this. I'm sure we've upset a lot of Leeds fans. I hope not, because I hope they'll have enjoyed the fact that we are talking about them with a great deal of respect, if not a great deal of affection. Even if we haven't been chanting, we all love Leeds. <laughs> we haven't been chanting all that, but absolutely, they were a great side and they were a credit to British football at the time that they were at their zenith. So thank you to Leeds United in that sense. I think we'll leave it at that point. And thank you to my friends, Paddy... Barclay and to John Holmes for a, another inspiring, nostalgic, analytical, thoroughly enjoyable romp back into the 1960s and 70s. We'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to Football Ruin My Life. Let us know what you think about Football Ruin My Life by emailing us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.